Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Our, our text this morning is Acts 15 verses 19 through 35. Uh, we're picking up where Philip left off with this Jerusalem council as we heard them refuse to compromise on the first importance issue of the gospel last week, we'll hear this week just how far they are willing to go on secondary issues. And in doing this, the apostles and elders teach us something that we desperately need to know about life together in God's kingdom. But before we hear the reading of God's word, let's pray. Lord God, who has given us the words of eternal life, grant us this day the freedom to choose you over the gods of our own making. Let us know you from within, and may your life-giving love flow out of us to others. Nourish us now by your word. We ask through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Acts 15, verses 19 through 35. Uh, We're picking up with James speaking. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For... From ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. 
But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, y'all come up and join me. Welcome. Come on up. Hey, y'all. So most years, Pastor Keynes and I get to go on kind of like a field trip. Did you know that? We, we go to a meeting, sometimes with one or two of the other elders here at Trinity. It's called General Assembly. And it's a time for a couple of thousand elders from churches all throughout our denomination to gather and make decisions about things that are important to all of us. It's kind of like that Jerusalem council that we just read about, all the elders gathered together in one place talking about important things. And, at the council, and like at the council, there are lots of things that we all agree on when we get together. We agree that we're all sinners. We agree that faith in Jesus is the only way that God rescues sinners. And we all agree that we really we want to live as followers of Jesus. But over the course of like the three days that we're really doing business there, do you know what else happens? We disagree with each other. We, we are not disagreeing about those most important things, you understand. But we are disagreeing, like those are the, like the most important things we agree on. But sometimes the next level down or maybe the next level down, we, we have disagreements. Now, the older you, that you guys get, you're going you're gonna to see this, that when people in the church disagree about stuff, we strongly disagree. And honestly, like even at that meeting, it can get a little hot in that room. Like emotions can kind of get pretty high. And when we vote on things, because we have to make decisions, when we vote on things, usually... Somebody doesn't get what they want. Somebody doesn't get their way. But here's what happens. After all the business is done and the voting is all finished, do you know what we do? We, we stand up and we, we stand shoulder to shoulder with each other, sometimes right next to somebody that we were really strongly disagreeing with, and we sing. Do you know what we sing? It, it's... Psalm 133, and it begins like this. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That means when they're together, when they stick together. Now, it might seem kind of strange to be singing about unity and agreement and togetherness when we just spent a fair amount of time disagreeing with each other, right? But it actually makes perfect sense when we understand what Psalm 133 is, is saying. It's saying basically the same thing that the Jerusalem Council was saying in what we just read. It's saying that real Christian togetherness, uh, our, our agreement in, uh, together, is uh, the thing that really connects us together is not agreement on every single thing, Real Christian unity is based on our agreement on the most important thing. That Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners like us. And if we are united in Him, if we are saved by His grace together, 
then we can be ready to show a lot of grace to each other, especially when we disagree on some of those lesser important things. Now, at the end of our service today, we're going to sing a song that was actually inspired by Psalm 133, and it's reminding us of how good it is when God's people live together as God's family. And so when we sing it, I want you guys to try to sing loud, okay? But because Jesus alone brings us into God's family together, that's another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right. Thanks, guys. You can go back to your seats. It is beautiful. I like that it matches your sweater and your dress and your bow. Man, you're on top of it. Well, turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Acts 15. Last week, you heard about a controversy that causes the first church council. Uh, as the gospel spread and more Gentiles were coming to believe in Jesus, a question about the nature of the gospel itself arose. Because some Jewish believers in Jesus said they also believed a man had to be circumcised in order to be saved. In other words, they thought that in order to become a Christian, a person had to become a Jew as well, submitting to the law of Moses, uh, of which circumcision was a sign. And so the question had to be answered, and we have to answer it too. What is a person required to do when they come to Jesus, when they come into his church? To ask it another way, does Jesus save righteous people or sinners? Does Jesus only save those who conform fully to the law of Moses represented in circumcision? Or does Jesus only save lawbreakers who cannot carry the heavy burden of the law themselves? Well, you heard the church's answer then and now, summarized by Peter and Barnabas and Paul and James, even though a couple of them had initially been pulled toward that idea that a person has to do something to earn an inheritance in God's kingdom, they'd all come to their senses. When they had remembered what God had already said in His Word and in His Son. And through their discussion, the first of two complementary lessons in this larger passage was presented because the church refused. The church refused to compromise the good news that a person is saved by faith alone in Christ alone, which is all of grace alone. They said the Gentiles don't have to become Jews to become saved citizens of God's kingdom under Christ. As another put it, no particular work of the law was added as a requirement for salvation or membership in this new community. Salvation cannot be a matter of human works. It is about receiving God's grace in Jesus from start to finish. And so the gospel of Jesus, as a gospel of grace alone, is that first lesson of this wider passage. And as Philip said last Sunday, the church's refusal to compromise on it tells us that this is an issue of first importance. 
But our focus this week is on that second complementary lesson of this passage. And it has everything to do with how Christians handle issues of secondary importance, even enormously significant ones. Because how you live together in God's church with people who are different than you is it matters tremendously to our God. He cares how you treat someone, someone else who confesses Jesus as Savior and Lord. And yet when it comes to secondary issues, even important ones, lives and thinks differently than you. And this becomes clear as we consider James's speech and the resulting letter regarding what the church should require of these many Gentiles coming in. Because they're answering a question that we still need answered today. How do God's people enjoy gospel unity amid diversity of thought and differences of conscience? In other words, what is required of Christians to keep the peace in God's church? Think about how hard this situation in Acts really was. People often romanticize the early church, imagining that the unity that we often see just came naturally. But in the history of the world, there has been no greater division between, uh, between people than the divide between Jew and Gentile. Think about it. Throughout the entire Old Testament, the Jews were God's peculiar people. And their peculiar identity was reflected by peculiar practices regarding food and peculiar ethics that guided their behavior. And as James noted in verse 21, these distinctives were reinforced every week. In every city, as the ancient laws of Moses were read to gather Jewish people, the proclamation of the Mosaic law reinforced not only their own identity and practices, but it also reinforced their view of everybody else. To them, the Gentiles, that is, everybody who wasn't Jewish, the Gentiles were seen as those filthy goyim, the unclean nations, whose menus not to mention the rest of their lives, whose menus alone were detestable to the Jewish mind. And here come some of those Gentiles into God's church. They're being saved by faith in Jesus, just like the Jewish believers. And it's obvious that this is God's will. This is God's doing. But how on earth are Jews and Gentiles going to live together in God's kingdom under King Jesus? That, yeah, they're firmly united in Christ, having entered his kingdom by faith in him alone. In those, same, in those essential first importance things, they are one and the same. But how on earth are they supposed to navigate the myriad of important yet secondary things that they're going to face. Now here, now, here and now, you and I experience the same challenge. Navigating all sorts of secondary issues, we, we as, as one puts it, must deal with distractions 
and temptations towards selfish, aloof individualism. Even in this church, we have people who differ on all sorts of secondary issues, even important ones. Different views on baptism, different views on politics, different views on how we should educate our kids. We have different views on how we are supposed to walk as Christians through the current cultural climate, which is often connected to our different views on eschatology. We have in this room different ideas about, not, not, not about the orthodox biblical sexual ethic, but we do have different ideas about how a follower of Jesus should talk about themselves and how they experience temptation in this world. We have different ideas about what's okay and what's not okay. You understand, we are firmly united in Christ, having entered his kingdom by faith in him alone. In that essential, first important thing, we are one in the same, but how on earth are we supposed to navigate the myriad of important yet still secondary things? Then and now, how do God's people, united by faith in Jesus, yet divided by distinctive differences of conscience and practice, how do we live together as God's one people? How do we keep first things first and let second things be second and keep the peace all along? I think we hear the answer in three parts in this passage. First, the peace of the church is kept when some believers, when some believers do not trouble others. And second, the church enjoys peace when other believers willingly limit themselves for the sake of some. And third, the peace of the church is kept when all, all pursue holiness together. First, the, the peace of the church is kept when some believers do not trouble others by insisting on agreement beyond the gospel. And look how it starts with the apostles and the elders themselves. They lead by example. Listen to James in verse 19, which is actually echoed in verse 28. He says, We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And in the letter, the church says, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. We're going to get to those requirements shortly, but in these phrases, the apostles are communicating their commitment to that first importance issue of salvation by faith in Jesus alone. They know that adding some other condition for fellowship would have a profoundly negative effect on these Gentile believers. In, in other words, the apostles are trying to avoid doing what some persons, they say, that is the Judaizers, what some persons did in verse 24. Look there. See the, see the connection? By insisting on circumcision as a requirement for salvation and inclusion in God's church, they troubled the Gentiles with their words, unsettling their minds. And that 
always happens. That always happens when people take an issue of secondary importance and they elevate it to the place of first importance. They disturb the peace of God's church. But when we keep things in their proper place and we practice charity toward each other, then peace flowers and flourishes. And peace does flourish as the council goes out of its way to emphasize the equality of Jewish and Gentile believers in God's church. Not only are they distancing themselves from the Judaizers who, without instruction from the council, troubled the Gentiles, but look at verse 23. Instead of using words that trouble the Gentiles, the council uses words that encourage them. Focusing on what really binds them together. They call the Gentiles their, you see it repeated again and again in this passage? Brothers. Which in the Greek, the plural brothers includes sisters as well. They, they write this way because, as another said, they know that by the grace of God, they have been born together into one family that could call God Father. How could they not then treat each other as brothers and sisters, whatever their previous lineage was? Luke, the, the writer of Acts, calls the followers of Jesus the brothers 25 times in Acts. That's more often than he calls them the disciples, 23 times, the church, 22 times, but the believers, five times, or the saints, four times. Luke wants us to understand that the familial bond uniting believers to one another is of the utmost importance to the identity of Christ's church and to our identity as individual members. Today, you and I have to see this as Christian love and charity in action. The Jerusalem Council is unwilling to trouble their brothers and sisters in Christ by elevating secondary issues to the place of first importance. And so eager are they to encourage the Gentiles. So eager are they to maintain the peace and unity of the church that they send the letter through what seems to be a mixture of faithful Jewish and Gentile brothers. Silas is a Greek name after all. They send this mixture of faithful brothers to deliver the letter. And this helps us to see today how necessary it is for some of us not to trouble others by insisting on agreement beyond the gospel as a condition for fellowship in God's church. We must recognize that we all have inherited ideas and practices, even biblical and important and wise and godly beliefs and practices, that do not rise to the level of first importance. They can and should be topics of conversation. We can even invite others to see the goodness of our convictions and practices. But we must be careful not to confuse those things for gospel-level issues. And however we talk about those things with fellow believers, we're... We have to talk with them 
as brothers and sisters in Christ and learn not to trouble them by insisting that our way is the only way for a Christian to act or think. You understand now, I am not saying that there's no good reason for expecting Christians to agree on secondary or even tertiary things. Even here at Trinity, we expect that our elders and deacons will agree not only on first importance issues of the gospel, but also on a great number of secondary issues too. That's how we can actually do church together and keep the peace. But you should notice, like in the service earlier, that membership here at Trinity does not require any agreement beyond what we are convinced are first order issues about our common sinfulness and our common faith in Jesus and our common commitment to follow Him in faith and repentance, pursuing obedience to Him. Because those things are the fundamental, essential elements of real gospel unity. And we are not free to trouble people by making secondary things a requirement for Christian fellowship. And so the unity of God's people is protected when some, for the sake of the gospel, refuse to trouble others by insisting on their own view, on secondary things. But here, here, I want you to see how love has to, love has to move in multiple directions. Because here's actually the second and the third point. The church enjoys peace when other believers willingly limit themselves for the sake of some and all pursue holiness together. That's really what this letter is all about. Having entered the kingdom of God through the grace of Jesus and by faith in Him alone, the council is inviting these Gentiles to live out their citizenship through self-denial and the pursuit of holiness. The, the council is teaching these newcomers about how life works within the kingdom of God and how good obedience to God really is. Leading by examples, the apostles and elders started by denying themselves first, refusing to trouble the Gentiles. But then they invite the Gentiles to join them in a beautiful life. In verses 28 and 29, look there, it's interesting to see how the apostles and elders frame these requirements for the Gentiles who have turned to God and come under the lordship of Christ. While those Judaizers, you remember, they wanted to give the Gentiles something to do. That is, get circumcised and keep the whole Mosaic law. The Jerusalem council in verse 28 agrees with the Holy Spirit that it's good and right to ask the Gentiles to abstain. That is, to keep themselves from certain things. That is, they give them a list of things to not do. And in verse 29, notice too how they express the outcome if the Gentiles limit themselves. They say, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Now, the apostles... The apostles have the right to command 
with the authority of Jesus himself. But as another puts it, this is more of a recommendation than a command. Now, the idea that the spirit of Jesus himself was involved in the council's deliberations is enough for a sermon unto itself. Because it tells us that as the elders were working for the purity of the gospel and the peace of Jesus' church, Jesus himself was working too. But for now, let's look at the list of requirements. The, the list, look in verse 29. The list is the same in verse 29 as it was back in verse 20, although the order gets rearranged. But the only burden laid on the Gentiles is that they abstain or keep themselves from, one, what has been sacrificed to idols, two, from blood, three, from what has been strangled, and four, from sexual immorality. In other words, they are being invited to limit themselves, to say no to themselves in four particular ways. Now, a lot of ink has been used by commentators trying to classify these four requirements. Some want to say that each of, four, uh, each of these things are, are merely Jewish cultural issues that the council is asking the Gentiles to accommodate Others say that all four of these things are moral issues that are binding on all believers in all times and all places. But as Philip and I discussed this list, we have a different view. And, and I think we get a little bit of help from an unlikely source. Do you remember that song from Sesame Street? <laughs> in the bit about picking out the one different thing from the three that matched? One of these things is not like the others. One of these things doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the others by the time I finish this song? When you look at the list, which thing is not like the others? Of course, the requirement of abstaining from sexual immorality stands out from the other three that have specifically to do with food. Keeping oneself from any kind of sexuality that the Lord, who invented sex, says is wrong, that's an issue of morality, not culture. And still, it seems strange for that one to be singled out. Why would the council mention only, essentially, only the seventh out of ten commandments and lay that on the Gentiles? Why would they not mention abstaining from murder or theft or lying? But if you think about the other three, we can ask some similar questions. When the apostles and elders say that the Gentiles would do well to abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols... They're talking about the same thing that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 10, about barbecue that was a part of pagan worship. And when they say the Gentiles would do well to abstain from blood and from what has been strangled, they're talking about specific food laws for Jews that came through Moses in Leviticus 17. The idea is that because the blood of creatures was connected to the life of creatures, and because the life of creatures were offered in sacrifices that atoned for the sins of God's people, 
Then the law of Moses forbade the people from eating for themselves something that was so valuable to God. In this time before Christ, the true sacrifice appeared. God's people were to treat as precious the blood that pointed toward the infinitely precious blood of Christ. But still, this is strange. Because we know that the apostles and elders were not willing to burden the Gentiles with circumcision and the full weight of the Mosaic law. So why? Why were they picking out these food-specific laws and putting those on the Gentiles? Well, what I want to suggest to you is that with these two different types of requirements, one moral, three related to food, it seems that the apostles and elders are doing two different things. With the three about food, they are inviting the Gentiles to love their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ with a charitable, self-limiting kind of love. And in the one about sexuality, they are encouraging the Gentiles to join them in their pursuit of holiness. First, think about that invitation to a self-limiting kind of love. Remember the context here. The Gentiles are coming into God's church. And now they're living in God's kingdom together with Jewish believers who haven't stopped being Jewish. Remember, too, what James said in verse 21 about Moses having people who proclaim him in every Sabbath, in every city, every Sabbath. As another pointed out, in such context where Moses' teachings were well-known and highly respected, Jewish scruples were sensitive. And out of charity, those scruples should not be violated. The sensitivity of the Jewish conscience on these issues of food gave the Gentiles an opportunity to love through self-denial. It's clear from Paul's later writings that the Gentiles were totally free to eat that meat that had been sacrificed to idols. He basically says, go ahead, enjoy that barbecue. But even there, in 1 Corinthians 10, he encourages believers to be willing to limit themselves for the sake of their brother's conscience. They're free but they should be willing to limit their own freedom for the sake of their brother or sister in Christ. And so what the council says here has less to do with laying down laws and more to do with encouraging a spirit of sensitivity among believers so that they, they put the interest of others ahead of their own freedom. They, they aren't trying to establish food laws for believers in all times and places, but rather they are cultivating an ethos of love through self-denial that would produce harmony rather than discord in Jesus' diverse church. Here and now, what are you free to do that you're willing to not do for the sake of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Is your heart ready to receive ideas about how you might limit yourself for the sake of a brother or sister? 
when it comes to any of these secondary issues, you understand, how flexible are you ready to be? Knowing that it wasn't a gospel issue, Timothy, Paul's protege, was willing to get circumcised. What are you willing to do or not do for the sake of love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? But consider, too, this requirement about keeping themselves from sexual immorality. This is that third point. Think about this, too. The apostles are encouraging the Gentiles to join them in the pursuit of holiness as God's people. But why does this one issue get singled out from the rest of God's moral law? Well, I think to put it simply... This was the specific area that the Gentiles would probably struggle with, would probably struggle the most. Uh, Another said it it may have needed special emphasis and clarification because many Gentiles' consciences were so corrupted that they did not hold a high standard of sexual purity. In other words, many cultures have common grace views about stealing and murder and truth-telling. They know that those things are wrong. But that's not usually the case when it comes to sexuality. Although aspects of it can be found in the world, a fully biblical sexual ethic is peculiar to the people of God. And so it's not that the apostles and elders are saying that sexual sin is worse than greed or some other kind of disordered worship. Rather, with a pastoral sensitivity, they are inviting the Gentiles to join them in the pursuit of holiness in the specific area where the Gentiles needed it most. Encouraging them with the same ideas that are going to appear throughout the New Testament, it's as if they're saying to the Gentiles and to us, you are not your own. Jesus is king over every aspect of our lives, and that includes our sexuality. And so listen to him and learn from him that obedience to him is better than any other pleasure that you can find. Whether you are single or married, what you do with your body is something that matters to God. And he wants you to understand the purpose that he gave it. Because if you use it some other way, you're going to hurt yourself. But if you submit yourself to him, even here, maybe especially here, then you're going to discover how beautiful it really is. For you and me today, we must hear that particular requirement as an invitation to join the church throughout the ages in the pursuit of holiness. In a culture, our culture, like theirs, obsessed with sex and personal freedom, you you and I holding to the historic, biblical, Christian sexual ethic will be a vital part of of no matter what particular struggles or temptations a person faces. It's one of the ways that we live out our confession that we do not belong to ourselves, but to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. But we pursue such obedience to Him, not again, not in order to earn anything from Him, We pursue the life of God's kingdom because we're already brought into it by the grace of Jesus. A a holy life 
that looks like his, that's actually a part of his gift to people. And being conformed to his image is the beautiful life. It's granting greater, it will grant greater pleasure than selfish pursuits of sex or money or power or comfort. And so with these Gentiles in Acts, we would do well to pursue a life that is set apart, a life that reflects the values and the beauty of the kingdom of God. Listen, this, this passage is telling us about how good it is when some of God's people refuse to trouble others. How good it is when some, when others rather, willingly limit themselves for the sake of some. And, and how good it is when all are pursuing holiness together. You, you see how good it is in the Gentiles' response to the letter. Look briefly there at verse 31. When the letter is delivered by Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas, and when it's read to the gathered believers in, uh, in, uh, of Jesus, we see them responding in a totally unnatural way. Instead of anger over their rights being infringed, instead of bristling against a call to self-denial, instead of saying, Jesus can save me, but he has no rights over my body. Instead of any of those things, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And when Judas and Silas go home, they are sent off in peace by their Gentile brothers in Christ. We're going to talk about that more next week, but isn't that beautiful? They hear the grace of the letter. They see the beauty of life in the kingdom into which Jesus has saved them. And we need to see this too, because far too often, far too often we tend toward the opposite of all this. Rather than working hard not to trouble them, some of us easily insist that others need to bend to us and our view on secondary things. Others of us bristle against the call to limit ourselves and, and love some of our brothers and sisters in Christ through self-denial. We, we easily confuse issues of first and second and third and fourth level importance. And it leads us to treat a brother or sister in Christ like an enemy. When that happens... The problem is not so much my view, you understand? The problem is my heart. I am passing judgment on the servant of another. Treating a fellow child of God as false. And, and that lack of love and grace means that I am foundering in my own pursuit of Christ-like holiness. Because I, uh, uh, sorry, because they are not breaking the peace. I am. But in the face of our failure and sin, the gospel remains true. And catching another glimpse of our Savior can strengthen our faith and deepen our repentance and renew our pursuit of this kind of life because we follow a self-denying King who refused to lay heavy burdens on his people. Rather, he took them on himself. He fulfilled the requirements of the law himself. And on the cross, he carried the burden of our shameful failures and selfishness and lack of love toward God and others. He loved us so much that he was willing to limit himself to the point of being nailed to a cross, arms outstretched, 
constrained so tightly that he could not breathe so that he could gather us together in those same arms into his kingdom. And for all of our weakness and sin, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And living by faith in him and repentance means that we must be ready to treat each other as brother and sister. Anyone who embraces Jesus by faith, who turns from sin to God, Another puts it like this, Christian fellowship means that grace should be shown for differences that aren't central to the truth of salvation. That's an expression of love. That, that deference preserves the church and protects it from fragmentation. Luther spoke of Paul being hard, even adamant on the gospel, but soft and flexible when it came to love. John Newton was said to be an iron pillar in essentials and a reed in non-essentials. They learned that from Jesus himself. And because Jesus is that way toward us, that's another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your kindness to us in Christ. Thank you for giving us a, a Savior who loves us even when we don't get it, who is soft and gentle and patient with us. Father, make us more like him, we pray, so that we might display your grace toward each other and toward a watching world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.